Delight, 88.7 FM, WAGP, Beaufort, Hilton Head Island, Savannah. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you in this new year to the Bible Line. So glad that we can be together for the next hour. We'll be taking people's questions. You can get them to us in different formats. The email address is tbl, that stands for the Bible Line at wagp.net. You can reach us that way, or if you're more comfortable, you can call us directly here at 877, the call letters WAGP 980, or our traditional number, 843-525-1859, 525-1859. When you call, you can go on the air live, or you can dictate your question, uh, and we're happy to take your questions however we receive them. So, Rick, always good to be back. We had a little things going on with funerals and other things, and um, but we're here live today and glad to be able to serve people. Indeed, and we have our first question from the great state north of us, Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, this listener writes, My wife and I are born-again Christians who are guided by God's Word and have experienced the joy of giving our tithes and offerings. As we approach the final chapter in our lives, what biblical advice do you have about dealing with our estate? We've seen money received as a, a poison in some people, and we've observed foundations go astray as culture creeps into and poisons its original intentions over time. And we have experienced the legacy of our own loving parents as the remainder of their estates were passed on to us. We are open to what God will have us do with his blessings beyond our lives on earth. Boy, I'd, I admire a couple like that here calling from uh, Raleigh and that it tells a lot about you and your desire to be good stewards of what God has entrusted to you. Um, you mentioned about foundations, and yes, I would uh, I, I would caution you in that realm. Hey, look, we, we had a, a listener years ago who uh, approached me about even underwriting uh, in perpetuity the, um, uh, the salaries of the of the staff of Community Bible Church, and I, I said to that individual, I said, you know, it's very generous and very kind of you, but uh, what you're basically doing could be very dangerous, and that while we're a Bible-believing church now, I said 50 years from now, we might not be. And so if you create a trust, a foundation to underwrite the salaries of Community Bible Church, it might go south on you uh, down the line. And so I discouraged that individual from, from, from doing that. So you've got to be very, very careful with um, uh, money that is given to foundations. I think the wisest thing to do is um, when you think about your children and grandchildren and you think about uh, parting your 
uh, estate to those whom you love. You've got to think about their lives and where they're at because uh, a lot of families will have uh, members who are either a irresponsible with money and it's really just like flushing it down the toilet. Um, some they mean well, but they just need help. They've never been good with money. Uh, and so, uh, in that kind of a setting, a trust can be set up where you have a responsible family member who allocates some of the monies that you've left behind in a will. Um, it's always good to, to give in terms of percentages. Let's say for the sake of argument, you had a hundred thousand dollars you wanted to give you, to your kids. Uh, you don't say in your will, well, we'll give $50,000 to Joe and $20,000 to Mary. And it's better to put percentage amounts because sometimes the numbers that you have, uh, when you write your will may not reflect the reality when you actually die. It might not be a hundred thousand dollars. It might be a million dollars and you might have wanted them to receive more. And that hundred thousand dollars may have also equally have shrunk to $50,000. And now there's not enough to really go around. So best to designate money in percentages. Uh, certainly, um, if someone's irresponsible and you think they're just going to waste the money, then put it in a trust. I know a lot of, uh, I've seen a lot of grandparents, uh, take money and they'll say when this child turns 18, then they have freedom to do what they want with the money. Uh, I've seen that in many cases. And unfortunately, in many cases it's been abused, uh, because at 18, the child's just not responsible enough it would have been better to say, well, at 18, we'll designate this money for college tuition. Or if, um, if they have no plans to go to college, then when they buy their first house, we'll designate this money as either a down payment or uh, to pay off the, the loan if, if there's that much money involved. So better to have someone over it, to put some uh, parameters around it in terms of what you want to do. And you're right, money many times can become a poison. And that's why it's important to review your will from time to time because circumstances do change. And uh, if someone, say, is a, a drunkard or a drug addict and they have issues in that realm, you know, then it's even greater disaster. So anyway, uh, thanks for thanks for asking that question. I'm sure it helps some people today. Let's go to the next uh, caller. I think we have someone waiting. 843-525-1859. If you have a question, actually, they dictated their question. The caller says uh, that she is studying the Bible by reading daily the Daily Bible, which is an NIV version that is in chronological order published by Harvest House. Uh, do you think this is a good way for her to do a daily study of the Bible? Uh, generally not, um, because the way, um, if I remember, I've held the daily Bible in my hand, it's not progressive. It's like, okay, um, you've got two chapters today out of Genesis, and then you've got a chapter out of the Psalms, and I think it's much wiser to have a daily Bible reading plan that has continuity to it where you work through an entire book without being interrupted for the simple reason that's the way God wrote books of the Bible. When um, someone sends you a letter, you don't start on page three, paragraph four, sentence six. Uh, no, to understand what the letter is all about in the context of the words, you need to start at the beginning and read all the way through. And one of the reasons the Bible is very difficult for many to understand 
is that um, they kind of take a jagged approach to it. Oh, I guess I'll read this chapter today, and let's jump over to this book and read this chapter. And So on average, if you read about three chapters a day, you'll get through the Bible in a year. A few times you have to do four, but uh, you'll get through the Bible in the whole year. But, you know, it might be worth uh, read Genesis, then read Matthew. And you could go back and forth between Old and New Testament books if you wanted, in addition to any you know, personal study you might be doing. Here's the thing with the NIV. Um, The NIV uh, came out at first in 1984. So I will quote, and I usually now put the parameters on it if I quote the NIV. In fact, I did on Sunday, and I referenced it NIV 84. Why? Because the uh, NIV 2010 that came out in paper in 2011 uh, took the TNIV. The TNIV is, was the today's New International Version. Originally, it was going to be written to replace the NIV. And when they did so, uh, they had over 100 Christian leaders from across the nation uh, spearheaded by James Dobson, who said, we don't need this translation because it was what we called a gender-neutral translation. And so at the protest of these Christian leaders, Zondervan said, we won't do it. Um, They lied. They went out and did it in private, in secret, and three years later, to the shock of these people and Christians across the country, they released the TNIV. Um, It didn't go over real well, but you can still buy it, of course. Um, But what they've done more recently is they took the TNIV and the NIV-84 and they combined it together. So if you had the NIV 84 and your edition was wearing out, you bought it in 2006, oh, I need a new Bible, and you oh, I get a new NIV. And Well, now in the 2011 version in paper, you're getting the byproduct of the TNIV and the NIV 84 blood together. Not totally gender neutral, but a lot of verses they changed. And if you want to see specific examples, I have a course online at searchthescriptures.org. It's bibliology, which is the study of the Bible, and there's one section in the course on an evaluation of English translations. And so I go through the pros and cons of different kinds of translations. There is um, fluid equivalent, dynamic equivalent, paraphrase, um, um, all kinds of different types of approach you can take uh, in using the original languages and then putting it in the receptor language. So, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of, obviously, the NIV 2011. Uh, to me, it's, it's trying to be too politically correct and interesting when you see the movements that are gravitating to that translation. You know, they've got women pastors and are real flaky on the gender issues, and some of them are embracing same-sex attraction. And what translation do they want to use? They want to use the NIV 2011. So uh, here, here's what's happened with the NIV. There was a guy in Zondervan years ago who was really a marketing genius. And so he took the NIV translation and he packaged it in over 50 different formats over the course of about 15 years. So he came up with, say, the Businessman's Bible. He came up with the uh, Woman's Devotional Bible, the Men's Devotional Bible, the Promise Keeper's Bible, uh, transla- uh, not translation, but package after package after package. And so he was even selling them in Walmarts and things like that, and it wasn't a bad thing that he did. 
uh, it was a way that you got some people who didn't read the Bible reading the Bible. So sometimes when you ask people what translation do you use, they say, I use the athletic uh the Athletic Bible. Well, there's no such translation. That was the packaging behind NIV. So uh, with that said, uh, the NIV has become the most popular translation in America. When they came out with the new edition, a lot of groups that were using the NIV have now left it, and they've gone to either the NASB or the ESV, uh, English Standard Version. So um, what you're doing is admirable. You want to read through the Bible in a year. I, I wouldn't take the approach, though, that uh, your little daily Bible thing has. And, uh, and I would get either the NAS or ESV. I prefer the NAS. Obviously, that's the one I preach from. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, our next listener wants to know, what is the biblical point behind marriage? Why should we get married? I understand it is wrong for a man and a woman to live together without being married, but why is it in God's plan for the majority of people to get married instead of the majority of people remaining single? Well, that's a great question, and marriage is obviously a central issue that we as evangelical Christians need to address in our day. Uh, Many, many reasons God gave for marriage. Um, One in the book of Genesis which is really the book of beginnings, he says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and the cattle, the creeping things. And God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. So one God uh, instituted marriage to reflect his image. And of course, there's a more fundamental question even behind that. Why did God create man? And he created us so that we might glorify him. Not that uh, God is on some ego trip or anything like that. God didn't need anything, but he created us for his own pleasure and for us to be able to enjoy God and to glorify him forever. So marriage really reflects the image of God. And it it shouldn't be miserable if it's understood uh, by what God has written in Scripture a hundred years ago, Only about one in a hundred marriages ever ended in divorce in this nation, and now about half do. And one of the reasons is people no longer know the owner's manual on how to have a successful marriage. And if a hundred years ago you weren't even a Christian, you were at least Christianized by a culture that had a strong Judeo-Christian ethic, and you would benefit by um, taking your home and building it around biblical principles. God also obviously gave marriage to propagate the human race. After he creates them, he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Uh, This is how the earth is filled, uh, through marriage. And so without marriage, there's no propagation of the the race. And, And God created marriage, too, in having children to build security in the hearts of those kids, Um, it's his way of not only building security, but raising them up in the Lord. And so, hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And he's speaking to the fathers of the nation, and his word must first be in your heart so that you can teach your children. In Paul's terminology in Ephesians 6, fathers who give the leadership in this whole realm are to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So one function of marriage is to raise a godly heritage, and this is why in in Malachi 2, uh, verse 15, right before 
God says, I, the God of Israel, hate divorce. One of the things that he hates about divorce is what it does to the children. So God wants to, look, if there were no marriage, let's just say there was no marriage in one, one year you lived with one woman and the next year another woman. Can you imagine what that would do to a child's heart? You know, you're all over the map. And that's, that's why divorce is so damaging. Um, God certainly uses marriage, too, as a picture of his relationship with Israel. We've been discussing this in our study of Revelation, also a picture of his relationship with the church, and that God has committed himself in an unconditional love that he has towards his people. So even in, say, the book of Hosea, God tells Hosea to marry a woman who's going to become a prostitute. She's going to live immorally. She's going to sleep around. Now, I don't think that he was marrying a prostitute from the start. Uh, It was an anticipatory uh, prophecy that God gave because God's will uh, never contradicts his word. And he would not ask Hosea, a godly man, to do something that was evil. But knowing where this woman would go, and uh, he would then commission him to, look, go after her by her back, and it's a picture of God's, you know, unconditional love for his people Israel. And likewise, Paul says the same in Ephesians 5, that the marriage bed, the marriage relationship, is to really reflect Christ's love for the church, that it's an, uh, un, it's a, it's a, it's a love that is unconditional in nature. And even if you don't totally understand God's plan for marriage, you're commanded as a Christian, to honor marriage. And so in Hebrews chapter 13, let me just turn there and read that verse. It's a verse that I think gets lost sometimes, especially when you have Christians in our day who, you know, just seem to be a little laxed in terms of God's plan between a man and a woman. Marriage is to be held in honor. So marriage is an honorable institution. And we should never really speak of it in a negative way. Now, that doesn't mean that every believer must marry. Uh, God knows that it's better for some not to be married. Why? Because he's sometimes called them that way. He's wired them that way. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so a single person can show a giving, sacrificial love in other ways than maybe in a marriage relationship. But God calls some people to be single, Paul will say, to give undistracted work uh, to the kingdom. But marriage shouldn't be a miserable institution, and it doesn't have to be if we follow what God says and we walk with him and we follow according to the way of uh, his owner's manual, the Holy Bible. So great question. I appreciate you asking it. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859 if you have a question on today's Bible line. And our next listener uh, writes as follows. While I can see how certain actions God calls wrong, like murder or lying, are sins and have bad ramifications, I don't see what it is, what is in, who is intrinsically hurt by being gay or having people of the same sex be married. Why does God care if two men or two women are married? What specifically is hurt by this? I know his plan for marriage is to be between one man and one woman, but I can't seem to understand why he would call it such an evil thing and put it on the level of murder. Well, it's it's a question that I'm assuming you're born again. And if you're born again 
And this is a critical issue because there are many people today who are Christianized who are not really born again. And if you're not born again, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that a natural man, speaking of a non-Christian, is unable to understand and embrace the things of God because they're spiritually discerned. So if you're not born again, it will never make sense to you. But listen, God said what he said because he meant what he said. And he said for a man to lie with a woman, for a man to lie with a man or a woman to lie with a woman is an abomination. It's uh, unnatural. Uh, It is an evil. And in Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament, Paul, by the way, I have a whole sermon, Is It Okay to Be Gay? Uh, It's on YouTube. It's at searchthescriptures.org. Um, and you might want to listen to that because I go through every single passage that the Bible addresses. I recently spoke to someone from Vermont, and they listened to that, and they contacted me, and they said it was like it was so helpful. You went through the whole thing from the first book to the last book, and I did um, because God's Word is clear on this. And so when God speaks of his giving a culture over to the lust of their own hearts, one expression is, homosexuality. He says, so that their bodies might be dishonored among them. So a gay relationship is a relationship that is dishonorable. And he explains, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So here's what happens to even some believers today is they're being driven emotionally rather than biblically, and they have to have their minds renewed. And so they all of a sudden have a family member who comes out gay. Now, do you love that family member? Of course. You're supposed to love them unconditionally. But unconditional love does not mean approval to things that are wrong and evil. And so if you have a family member that you love unconditionally, you tell them the truth. And if that means they're forsaking you and hating you and abandoning you, then you have to go where it leads, but you don't compromise what is true. You know, people ask me from time to time in counseling situations, should I go to a gay marriage? And I say, no, never, ever. Don't do that. Your presence in a gay marriage at a gay marriage is giving endorsement to that so-called gay marriage. Now, you can call it a marriage, and the Supreme Court calls it a marriage. It's not obviously a marriage. I mean, you can call, uh, if you ask, uh, Abraham Lincoln was once asked a young boy, he said, uh, if a If a dog's uh, tail is a leg, then how many legs does a dog have? And he said, five legs. He said, no, he has four. You can call a tail a leg, but a leg isn't a tail, and a tail isn't a leg. And you can call it whatever you want. You can call two women or two men living together a marriage, but it's not. It's an abomination to God. And as Christians, we're not to give endorsement to it. Uh, That doesn't mean that you have to be mean or ugly and I've had people who, you know, they they come to faith and they realize some of the mistakes they've made. And, you know, one couple who came into the office and relatively new Christians and they've got, uh, you know, their son married to a, 
another man and for years and years they would come to their home at Christmas and they'd sleep in the same bedroom and they said, well, now that we're believers, we're kind of having our second doubts. And I said, you should. I said, that doesn't mean that you couldn't welcome them at your Christmas dinner table and open gifts with them, but you need to tell them that this is now a violation of your conscience for them to sleep in your house and to commit immoral acts. It would be no different if um, if you had uh, a heterosexual couple that was living together and they want to come and they're a relative and you've got a daughter and she's been living with her boyfriend for five years and they want to come to your house for Christmas. No, your home is a sacred place and you would not want to use that to foster sin. So they could not sleep in the same room. Otherwise, you're giving endorsement to what God calls evil. So we, we, we can't back away on this, no matter how emotionally involved or inta- attached we are in the name of love, because it's not love. You can call it love, but it's not love. It's evil. It's wrong. And you will meet God in his discipline if you know Christ, if you propagate such a thing. All right, great question. I hope that answers it. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question, as does Abby from Somerville, who writes, I recently saw someone say this on account I follow social media. This person claims to be a Christian. Quote, unquote, when a woman is hit by her husband, it is considered domestic violence. But when a child is hit by his father, it is considered discipline. So then the question is, what is the cutoff age of it going from discipline to abuse? What are your thoughts on this? And what is the biblical way to explain non-abusive spanking? The same person also wrote up her view that she believes Proverbs is speaking of a young man, not a child, and the verse is speaking of disciplining him with a rod, and that the rod in the verses is not literal. Thank you so much for your input. Well, one, it is a literal rod in Proverbs, and it is uh, the means by which God would have us to discipline our children obviously age appropriately in in a non-abusive way. But your question before I get into that whole issue of the rod is there is an assumption that the spirit behind disciplining a child and a man, say, abusing his wife is the same, and they're not. Uh, Discipline is always to be done in love. Uh, Paul, when He addresses fathers, and appropriately so, because the father is the head of the home and he is to give leadership to his home. He says this after he gives the admonition to honor your father and your mother, the first commandment with a promise. Then he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up on the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So there is discipline uh, that involves also physical reparations that come for disobedience. There has to be sometimes pain associated with a bad activity, but not abuse. And there's a big difference. And one, God does say to use the rod in Proverbs 22. Why? Because you don't use the same instrument that you reach out and hug a child with, namely your hand, to discipline them. You never discipline with your hand. God always gave a separate instrument in the scriptures Your hand is to be associated with embracing and love and hugging, not with spanking. And God specifically gives a place in the body on the backside. It's padded. It's designed for such discipline. So one, it's done in love. It's not abusive. And if a person can't control himself, then 
he should not use any kind of corporal punishment. Uh, or maybe the other spouse should exercise that. But I know people today, because we live in such an abusive society, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. Kind of like the first question, well, why even have marriage today? Why, why would someone even ask a question like that today? I'll tell you why. Because we live in such a messed up society where so many marriages have gone south and so many people have been in marriages that have just been living hell. And so well, why even get married? And so people will then throw the baby out with the bathwater. As long as you're happy, just people just need to be happy. Not wholly, just happy. So if two women want to sleep together and be married, great, as long as they're happy. No, that's evil. That's evil. And it's evil for a man, say, to abuse a woman or in rare occasions for a woman to abuse a man. But that's pretty rare. It's usually the man, the stronger of the two physically, that does that kind of thing. So there's no comparison. We're not even on the same page when we're speaking about loving discipline with a goal to correct the child, to shape the child's um, will in a way that you don't close them up and harden their spirit, but they love you even more because of your kind, loving, controlled discipline. Anyway, good, good question. All right. Let's go on to the next one. We've got a couple of live callers okay. standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. This is Anthony. How are you? I'm doing well, sir. How about yourself? Oh, okay. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. sir. Go ahead, Anthony. Okay. Thanks for calling right. today. Good morning, Pastor. Yes, sir. Question. Two quick questions, if you don't mind. Um, listening to the radio one day last week, and um, a statement come up, good statement. I believe, and it says that Christian people and non-Christian people are spiritually starving to death because they're not reading God's Word and that we have lost an appetite for God's Word. All right, we lost... Go ahead. What about the folks who are unsaved I guess, could you say they ever had an appetite for God's Word? Because I know there are a lot of people that come to church every day that love listening to the Word, but never respond to it. That's the question I want to ask. All right, it's a, it's a good question. So let's talk about appetite for both the believer and the unbeliever. For the unbeliever, a lot depends on how they are responding to the revelation that God has given them and the work of God in their heart. God works in a general way with all lost people uh, through creation and conscience. And some people take the revelation that God exists and they say there is no God, or they'll say I'm an agnostic, or I don't agree with the Bible, or I don't think that, you know, homosexuality or adultery or my going out and getting wasted as long as I don't hurt anyone is wrong. What are such people doing? They are suppressing what we would call general revelation that comes through the creation for God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. Paul will write in Romans 1, are clearly seen how through the things that he made. And they are arguing against general revelation through conscience. Gentiles not having the law, Paul will say, are a law unto themselves 
that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience either defending them or accusing them. So men have the benefit of knowing that they're either pleasing or displeasing God, how? Through their conscience. But if a man suppresses that revelation, their heart can become very calloused. And so their response as a lost person to the Word of God may be different than someone who is not lost. Um, So, in fact, it will be, because Jesus tells us so. He tells, for instance, in the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, how a person goes out and he sows seed, and when he gives the definition of all that it represents, he says, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So that's what we're talking about, the Bible. And he said, those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. How could the unbeliever get to that point? Well, very easily um, in the fact that they have suppressed general revelation for so long. God warns in Noah's day, my spirit will not always strive with men. No one becomes a Christian on their own. We are the sovereign work of a holy God who seeks after lost people. And when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So in this age, we also have the spirit of God who works. And so Jesus can say no one can become a Christian. No one can come to the Father unless the Father first draws him. But like in John chapter 12, where you have people who had seen not only general revelation through creation and conscience. They had seen special revelation through the miracles of the Messiah themselves. And Jesus said, because they would not believe, they came to the point where they could not believe. And that's why he admonished them in John chapter 12, that you don't have forever to make a decision. I may be speaking to someone today who's listening to this broadcast. And if you're not saved, you don't have forever. You can't come on your own schedule. God says today is the day of salvation. You don't have the promise that you'll be alive tomorrow, much less you'll have the interest. So Jesus will say, while the light is among you, walk while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke. John will then say, and went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs, miracles before them, yet they were not believing him. And so then he will say, for this reason, they could not believe. So because they would not believe, they reached a point where they could not believe. And that's really what you've got in this first soil, where the devil comes and takes away the seed so that they may not believe and be saved. You can reach a point of no return. Now, we don't know who that is. We don't know when it happens. We have to assume as long as there's breath, there's potential opportunity. You see one deathbed conversion in the Bible, which gives us some hope, but there's only one so that no one will presume and um, there is, is one, though, that no one will despair, the thief on the cross. In the last moments of his life, he called upon the Lord God in faith. But many people would never do that in the last moments of their life because years before, they sealed their decision. Those in the rocky soil, in addition, are those who hear, receive the word with joy. There is an emotional response. They seem to have an appetite, but they have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. And in the uh, parallel text, 
in Matthew's account, he spells that out a little bit more, the things of the world and all that the world has to offer. So they're, they're Christianized, they hear the gospel, they get excited, but they don't make a decision, and then they fall away. And then those on the rocky soil are those who receive the word with joy. They have no firm root. Okay, then the seed among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. As they go on their way, they are choked with the worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and they bring no fruit. But here's a last category of an unbeliever who becomes a Christian, and that's what the last category is descriptive of. I know there was a book came out years ago, Men Made, not no, let's see, Man in the Mirror, Man in the Mirror, and he described the first soil as lost, and the next two as, you know, just less than desirable, spirit-filled Christians, and the final soil is a spirit-filled Christian. That's not the purpose of this parable. Put it together, it's found in all three accounts, Mark, Luke, and Matthew. The first three soils are unbelievers. The fourth soil is that of a believer. So some in an honest and good heart. How did they get there? By nature, no, the heart is desperately wicked. They got there because they responded to the work of God in their life. They didn't suppress it. They freely chose. They're free moral agents and they freely chose to respond to the work of God because the initiation doesn't begin with us but with God because by nature there's none who seek after God. So there's that kind of unbeliever, and then there are believers, yes, certainly, who are starving to death. And I would put the blame primarily on that in our day on the pulpits in America, that the pulpits in America are not preaching the Word of God. Pastors are not doing what God has called them to do as faithful shepherds. And so the appetite and desire uh, to dig into God's Word is lost because uh, they haven't had that firm foundation instilled in their hearts, and they easily drift away. So anyway, we could spend more time on it, but let's go to the next caller. We've got a lot stacking up here. Indeed we do. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. Hey, hey um, go I'm ahead. reading First Kings, and I got to chapter 13, and that's the story of the prophet who was sent to Jeroboam to prophesy to him. And anyway, he, you know, he disobeyed, and when he was coming home, the old prophet invited him in. So what's the application there other than obedience, of course, but, you know, the lion kills him and then stands beside him and doesn't devour him and doesn't devour the donkey. It's just a, it's a fascinating account, and I, I've just always wondered about the application in the picture there. Well, it's a good question, and, um, you know, I would say very simply, the broadest a- a- application is you obey what you know. Obey what you know. People cannot... Uh, take a loose approach to God's Word. I don't care if they're a pastor or a preacher or a prophet or someone who is uh, just a faithful church member and they have no speaking gifts, they're not called into ministry. They better obey what they know because there are grave consequences when we don't. And many times people, they knew the will of God, they didn't obey the will of God, and then sometimes for decades, they experience the consequences of that. I, I could preach on this passage for an hour, but I won't. Um, the questions are stacking up, but I, I, that should get you started. Let's go to the next question. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, and a caller was listening to a message on Search the Scriptures, and she thought you were talking about Campus Crusade for Christ. 
She couldn't hear the entire message, but she thinks you were mentioning that they are now endorsing the gay lifestyle. Did she hear correctly? Well, no, it was last Sunday's message, and I did not say that they officially endorsed the gay lifestyle as an organization. But what I did say is that last summer at Campus Crusade, or now better known as Crew Staff Training, they had a speaker who is, A, a woman pastor. So, first of all, if you're a credible evangelical organization and you are looking to create healthy models for some 5,000 missionary staff who are gathered there in Moby Gym, where I spent many a summer on staff with crew, um, and you bring in a woman, why are you bringing in a woman pastor, number one? Because that's in violation of the clear teaching of Scripture. Women are not to be pastors. And then when you have someone, okay, I was, this is even, um, I I didn't even share this in the sermon on Sunday, but I have three good friends who are on the national team of, uh, of crew ministry. And one is over a particular ministry, heads a particular ministry. And I'd send him a compilation of video clips of staff training that were very disturbing to me. They were dealing with issues that had very little to do with anything. And of course, he said, Pastor Carl, I was, my heart was just broken. He said, a gay person came to the microphone and said that he was gay and that he, and this is a member of the national team. This is not just some like secondary, he's there, he's present. Uh, he's a credible, godly man. And he said, I just feel so welcome that I can be gay and be accepted in this organization. And he received a standing ovation. That's very, very disheartening to me. Now, let me, in fairness to them, what they're doing is they're giving endorsement to people who are celibate gays. So there's a regional director with crew in the Boston area who's over several states. She herself says that she is same-sex attracted and that you can be same-sex attracted and still be a good Christian. Well, number one, why would she even be on staff with a Christian organization? If someone came and they wanted to apply on my staff and they said, well, Pastor Carl, I need to tell you something. Um, You know, I have a real problem with uh, heterosexual lust, and it just seems to kind of dominate me, and I can't get a hold of this. And I would say, well, this is important. You need to get a hold of it. But, you know, you're not really at a point where you should be considered for full-time ministry. Why? Because emotions and feelings and issues of the heart are not morally neutral. And to say that same-sex attraction is a morally neutral feeling is wrong. It is not morally neutral. It needs to be brought under the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what really irks me with, you know, um, guys like Tim Keller, who's supposedly an apologist, and sent to pastors across the nation this past year, you know, a survey to make sure that our church is friendly to homosexual people. Look, sometimes people will accuse me and they'll say, well, you hate gay people. I don't hate gay people. I love gay people. I love, I love sinners because I'm a sinner saved by grace. But I'll tell you, it's not loving when you endorse a person's behavior as being okay. That's the most hateful thing in the world that you can do. And if you don't see that, you're blind to what God plainly says. And to say that 
same-sex attraction feelings, which is now the position. I'm not saying all crew staff are there. Look, we, we, we support some 30 crew missionaries in different parts of the world. And I'm getting ready to um, uh, produce a survey, a questionnaire, that I'm going to send to all 30 of them. I just want to make sure they're on the same page. As far as I know, all of these people are just solid, straight-as-an-arrow people. But what's happening is there's, there's a new generation that's coming up, millennials and down, that don't see things in the same way that God plainly spells it out in his word. And you either take a stance, you know, you don't do what J.D. Greer, the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, came out and did, you know, about six weeks ago, where he says he's being hospitable. He's using hospitable pronouns in addressing transgender people. So if he wants to be called G or she, or but he's biologically a male, but wants to be called a female, you call him that? No, that, that's wrong. That's just wrong. And if you're so blind to that because you want people to like you, you're, man, you're way off. And J.D. Greer is way off, and he's leading the Southern Baptist Convention into a split. It's going to split. It's going to split. And, um, and yet there are so many people who are blind. Well, that's just a loving thing to do, Pastor. Is it loving when you know someone is headed towards a cliff and they don't see that they're getting ready to go over a cliff, and, but they're happy at the moment and they're enjoying life? Well, as long as they're happy, you know, we're going to let them go over the cliff? Not if you really love them. And they may be happy in their sin, but if they're headed over an eternal cliff into a place of eternal retribution and wrath, the most loving thing to do is address it. And look, crusade is opening the door to all kinds of evil right now, and they are discussing issues that have gotten away from what their founder, Dr. Bill Bright, purposed them to do as an organization. I worked for them for 12 and a half years. I love crew. I came to faith through the crew ministry as a freshman in college. So I'm not against crew, but I want to tell you where they are headed is dangerous. And I'm afraid that you give them 10 years, they won't even be recognizable as an evangelical group. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, don't forget you can listen to this or any of the messages of previous Bible lines, as well as the Search the Scriptures archives at our website, wagp.net. And a listener uh, who remains anonymous but lives in Alabama writes, I know that the Bible states that we must honor our mother and father, but what is a Christian to do when their parents are actively living in sin? How do I honor and respect my parents without respecting and honoring the sin that they commit? For example, if my father has an extramarital relationship, how do I honor him as my father without honoring the actions that, in which he partakes? Also, how do we love and honor parents that have committed horrible sins against us? Well, that's a great question, and it comes up more often than I wish. Uh, there are two central passages. The first would be in Exodus chapter 20. So let me turn there. In Exodus 20, you have the Decalogue, what we call the Ten Commandments. And there, God simply says, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. And the second central passage where the Ten Commandments are written in Deuteronomy 5, it's a little more extensive. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, that your days may be prolonged in the land and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. 
interestingly, when you come to the New Testament, Paul quotes this particular commandment, but he makes a slight modification under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he's living during the church age and not during that time where Israel are uniquely his people. And there he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for that is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long, not in the land as it's rendered in Deuteronomy, but that it that you may live long on the earth. Why? Because God's people, for the most part, are no longer localized, again, to the land of Canaan, to Israel. And, of course, when Moses gives this in the final version uh, in Deuteronomy 5, where you have the second reading of the law, so to speak, just before he dies, and the people, after 40 years, a new generation goes in, they're all going to Israel. They're all going into the promised land. Their scattering will come much later. It's warned, it's prophesied in Deuteronomy, but it comes much later. But his point is, is that if you want to live a high-quality life and a long life in the land of Israel, then one key thing is you obey your father and your mother. And Paul says the same here under the new covenant uh, to believers. But since God's people are no longer localized to the land, he broadens it to the earth. So it's not a qualified honor. He doesn't say, well, only if your parents are really great people, you should honor them. You honor them no matter what. So you're basically asking me, what does honoring an abusive parent look like? And uh, it can be difficult. So I would give you some, some guidelines as I've given hundreds over the last four decades I've been in ministry. One, you have to carry forgiveness in your heart. Uh, you have to forgive a parent who has maybe not been the best parent in the world. Some may not be doing the things that you've said. They're not involved in some extramarital relationship or, or maybe they've left your mother or, or maybe even abused you. They may provide the food and clothing and a roof over your neck, uh, over your house, uh, over your head, uh, but, but they're just not kind people. They're mean and hateful. And, and how do you honor someone like that? Well, you've got to carry forgiveness in your heart, and you have to carry an attitude of compassion in your heart, because very often our parents are reflective of the kind of home that they grew up in, where they were maybe abused and constantly screamed at and and never really admonished in the Lord and brought up in God's compassion. So one thing is that forgiveness um, is critical. And of course, as you become adults, and you leave the home, uh, honoring does not mean continual submission to their authority. But with that said, you know, assuming I'm, I'm, what I'm hearing here is that you are an adult and you're looking at your dad and, and he is, uh, he's having an affair. Maybe he's left your mom. He's having an extramarital relationship. You can still honor him without approving what he's done. And sometimes, as a believer, you have to be very careful in terms of how you honor them. There are times when you have to honor someone from afar. And I uh, recently was dealing with a, a couple, and and he was telling me that um, his father was abusive to one of uh, his sisters, and the mother just kind of hid it and didn't deal with it. And 
and now he's got questions about whether or not uh, he would, he should now as an adult male bring his grandchildren there. And I would say, well, I would be very careful. You know, your mother obviously didn't do what was right. Uh, Your father should have been held accountable. He wasn't. Um, And who knows? History could repeat itself. I, I wouldn't allow my grandchildren to be alone in a room with a person like that. And you might decide that if the relationship is abusive in other ways, Maybe if you grew up in a home where there was yelling and screaming and now you bring your grandchildren to that home and your grandparent does the same thing with your grandchildren, probably not a good idea to have them there. And you may have to honor them from afar. It might be a letter, it might be a note, might be telephone calls, but um, you can't allow the next generation to be abused if uh, that is what is going down, you, you've got to be very, very wise in terms of how you honor them. So honoring God's uh, commandment here to honor our parents is not conditional that they're great people. It is a command that is to be given no matter what. And But how you do it, I think, is conditioned on the setting, the dangers, the potential damage that could be done. And again, you speak the truth in love, and sometimes you can say, hey, Dad, you know, or Mom, if things change here, you know, like let's say you have a mother who's an alcoholic. This often comes up, and the uh, the mama's afraid to leave the kids there because she might start drinking, and she might get behind the wheel of a car. I mean, it just would be stupid for you to leave them there. And though you love your mother and you think she's a wonderful person, you know, there's different kinds of drunks. There's happy drunks, there's mean drunks, there's all kinds of drunks. Um, You have to be responsible for your children and for yourself. You've got to forgive. You've got to pray for them, for conversion most of the time, for compassion in your own heart. But you can't be flippant in how you uh, deal with them. Anyway, we're out of time. We, a lot of questions we couldn't get to today, but we tried to cover as many as we could. Do you have time to talk about Hanok Teller? Yeah, Hanok Teller, Rabbi Hanok Teller from Jerusalem will be here on Wednesday night, February the 12th, uh, limited seating to 803 people. Uh, he has 18 children, and his topic is anti-Semitism and the Holocaust, and I'll be speaking directly after him. Wednesday night, Community Bible Church, February the 12th, at 6.30. God bless you. Thanks for being with us today.